0: this afternoon and go to 2 Samuel chapter number 14, if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 14. You know you've been at a good youth rally and the games have been good when the competitors, immediately upon leaving the stage competing, have to make a dash for the bathroom. You know, great game, (laughs) great youth rally. Why is it that we feel like we have to do the grossest, nastiest things uh, with teenagers at youth rallies? Uh, we, run a, uh, we run a Christian camp at, uh, at our church, and uh, we invite you know, churches to come. If you're a youth pastor or a pastor and you're looking for a good Christian camp for your young people, uh, we rent out Camp Kobiac in Michigan, and uh, our church kind of oversees it and runs it. And so if you know anything about us as far as our standards and, and that sort of thing, and you would be in agreement, uh, you know, you, I think you'd find yourself very comfortable at our camp. But uh, we, we, uh, we assign different youth pastors to do different responsibilities and different things, and... And I gave one youth pastor responsibility. I said, look, Tuesday night, you're going to do, do this game. It's your night. You just do you know, whatever you need to do. And, and I probably should have inspected a little bit closer. And I didn't. And that was a huge mistake on my part. Because he, he brought all the teenagers into the room. And uh, you know there was like this fad that was going in youth groups, and probably still going to a certain extent, where they took the popular television show Fear Factor. And they were doing all the crazy stuff, some of the crazy stuff that you would see on that. And, uh, and he he got a lineup of teenagers from each team. And there were like six of them. And um, one stood here, 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 all the way in the middle on the one team, and then on this side all the way over. And they each had a cup. And the guy at one, at, at one end had a, had, a, had a can of prune juice. And, uh, and what they had to do is they had to pour a little bit into the cup, drink it, spit it into the next guy's cup. He had to drink it, spit it in the next. This is no joke, I promise you. This was going on at the camp that I run. I'm standing in the back. I'm calling children's services, just giving them a heads up. Look, you're going to get some phone calls at the end of this week, I promise you. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know why it is. Youth pastors, we feel like in order to keep teenagers entertained, we've got to have them do the grossest things imaginable. I, my understanding is they ground up a Taco Bell meal. I was at a youth rally in Indianapolis a couple of years ago. And, uh, and they asked, they said, how many of you like McDonald's Happy Meals? And all the hands, yeah, we love McDonald's Happy Meals. I want two people to come up and eat McDonald's Happy Meal. They came up and they did the same old thing. Pulled the blender out, threw the hamburger in there, threw the fries in there, and then they dumped the Dr. Pepper on top of it. Stuck the lid on that thing and ground it all up and they had to drink it. And, and uh, you know, just crazy stuff. So you know you've been at a good youth rally when there's a huge trash can on the platform just in case. And as soon as the kids get off the platform, they're running for that bathroom. Uh, we know it's been good. We've been in the Lord's presence when that happens, right? So anyways, I, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed my time here today. And uh, you know the best part about teenagers is um, that you guys, are, you guys are flexible, right? And I had a pastor to tell me a number of years ago, he said, if you're not, he was a church planner, he said, if you're not flexible, you're miserable. And that's so very true. You know, you, you look at this church and you know, I guarantee you probably this church never envisioned or dreamed that for a period of time, this would be their auditorium. This would be their church complex. But hey, look, you know what? It's the Lord's work and this is where he has us. And if we're not flexible, we're miserable. And uh, my, what a great job they've done putting this thing on and, and that sort of thing. So look, when the heavens open, no big deal. The only bummer is it smells a whole lot worse in here this afternoon than it did this morning. Some of you look like drowned rats uh, but we're going to survive and we're going to get through it, all right? 2 Samuel chapter number 14. This is my last chance to speak to you today. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Pastor Knopf here in just a little bit. And i uh, enjoyed getting to know him and his family. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy hearing from him in just a moment. But uh, this is my last chance to address you. And uh, again, I, I'm just so thankful for the opportunity. You listened great this morning. And uh, let, let's hope that we can continue that uh, this afternoon. 2 Samuel chapter number 14. Somewhat of an unusual passage of Scripture. Let me give you just a little bit of background. David, we all know the story, sinned with Bathsheba. We don't need to go into great detail about that, but we know he made a huge mistake. In fact, a mistake that, that literally would define his life for the rest of eternity. When you think of David, you think of one of two events. You think of David and Goliath, and you oftentimes think of David and Bathsheba. you think about about our lives and and the fact that the the highest high we'll ever experience is equaled by the lowest low that you could ever experience. And that's David's life. And because of that sin with Bathsheba, we're familiar with the fact that Nathan the prophet came in and confronted, confronted David. And he used a parable. He talked about a man that had a a little lamb, you, you know the story, and, and it was his only little lamb that he had, and his next-door neighbor or a man nearby that lived nearby had hundreds, maybe even thousands of lambs, and, and he had a visitor that came to his, to his house, and, and he knew, knew he, that he needed to, to serve him a good meal, and so rather than going to his hundreds or thousands of lambs and slaughtering one of them and pre, pre, presenting that to him as the meal, he, he said Nathan said in his parable that the, the rich man went to the very poor man. And took the only little lamb that he had. It was a picture of what David had done with Bathsheba and the fact that David had many wives. Certainly not God's plan or pattern, but uh, it was what it was. It was certainly very distorted in the Old Testament, the way that things were done. But Uriah, as far as we know, had just one wife. One wife only, the wife of, of his youth that he loved with all of his heart. And David had stolen that essentially from him, had taken that from him. And David didn't realize the peril. It wasn't understanding the connection. And David became infuriated on his throne and he said, that man will pay back fourfold. Not realizing, David not realizing that he was sentencing himself. You study the passage of scripture out and you will find that David paid back fourfold for the rest of his life in this situation involving Bathsheba. For we find that the child that was born as a product of that union between he and Bathsheba lived just a short time and that child died. Even though David begged and he pleaded with God to spare that child's life, that child died. A chapter or so later we find that David had a had a son, his name was Amnon, and, and Amnon had, a, had, a, had desires or had a Feelings for a, for a half-sister. Obviously, it sounds very bizarre in our culture and our society, but it seems to be somewhat normal in that society. You read the passage of Scripture and you'll find that Tamar said to Amnon, look, don't force yourself upon me. If you, if you have a desire to have a relationship with me, go to our father. He will, he will not hold me back from you. He'll allow you to marry me. But Amnon went about it his own way, and we know that Amnon took the purity of his half-sister Tamar. So that's the second punishment that David would endure to know that his sister or excuse me his daughter had been violated at the hands of his son. The Bible says that two full years later, the brother of Tamar, the full brother of Tamar, waited purposely for at least two years. And at the end of two years, he, he asked David if he could have all of his brothers to come to a certain gathering that he had prepared, not realizing, David not realizing, that Absalom was using this as an opportunity to take the life of Amnon for what he had done. That's number three, because Amnon lost his life at that gathering of David's sons. And that's where we are in this passage of Scripture. That has just taken place, and at this point, Absalom is in a period of 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 of, a, of a, a, a isolation from his father David he's fearful about coming back and how that would be received and 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 realizing what he's done but he feels like it's worth it to defend the honor of his sister meanwhile david is mourning because he's lost he lost a little baby that died his 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 daughter will never be the same because of this experience that she had to encounter his one son is dead because of what he's done to his sister and because of what his brother did to him. And he realizes Absalom is, is isolated. He's in a moment of somewhat of asylum, so to speak. He's away from his father and he's lost, he's lost so many children as a result of one night of passion. Think about it, young people. Sometimes we sit here and we try to weigh out our sins and can I get away with this or is this something that I should do? Will the punishment really be all that bad? And I remind you of what David went through I remind you what some other Bible characters went through and how many times they paid for that sin long after they enjoyed the pleasures of that sin. David has a, has a man that's close and near and dear to his heart. His name is Joab. If you'll notice in verse number one, the Bible says Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. In other words, he sensed that, that David wanted to restore this relationship with Absalom. He kind of picked up on that. He, recognize David just wasn't the same because Absalom was, was not there with him. In verse number 2, And, and Joab sent to Tekoa, and fetched thence a wise woman, and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner. Put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil. But be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead, and come to the king and speak on this man unto him. We won't take time to read the whole passage of Scripture, but basically she does this. She appears to be a mourner, and she comes and she presents this story to David. And the story goes something like this. She said, David, I, I had two sons. Just two sons, that's it. My husband's gone, he's dead. And and, and I had these two boys, and, and, and the one boy slew the other boy. And, uh, and and I, because I've already lost one son, and I don't want to lose another son, I, I'm not ready just to uh, just to cast him off either. And and I, and I want to maintain a relationship with him, but my family will not allow me to do it. My family's so infuriated by what this one uh, brother did to his other brother that they want him to die for this sin. And she said, "I just I just don't want that to happen. I can't take it." David essentially says, bring him back. Let him come back into your home and and he'll have the protection of the king because I know where you're coming from. I know how it feels. The end of all of this, she reveals to David. She says, David, the story I've told you is not actually accurate. The story that I've told you is what we perceive you're going through as well. And we know that you long to bring Absalom back into your home and to restore the fellowship with Absalom that once existed, but you feel like you cannot because of the opinions of others. She draws it all to a conclusion where she says, in verse number 14, For we must needs die, and there is water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, Yet doth he devise means that his banish be not expelled from him. I read that passage of scripture and I saw the word picture that was given there. She said, we are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. And I want to preach to you this morning, or excuse me, this afternoon on this thought. Once it's spilled, it's gone. Once it's spilled, it's gone. And I want us to ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together here today. Father, we thank you for this day. and well, We've enjoyed the activities. We've enjoyed the fellowship. We've enjoyed the food. And uh, Lord, we, we pray that uh, the time around the Word of God has been meaningful and helpful to these young people. Lord, I pray that as uh, Lord, we, we finish up this session, Lord, that you give me strength, the ability and the power that I need to be able to communicate this message. And I pray for Pastor Corey in just a few brief moments as he'll stand to address this great group of young people. Uh, Lord, that you'd help him to, uh, Lord, present to them what what you've laid on his heart. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn uh, that which you have us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could have uh, just one volunteer, I need someone to give me a hand up here real quick. And it doesn't matter really who it is. Uh, Let me get this guy right here. Come on up with me if you'll join me up here. And um, I I want you to help me with something. I have two two objects here. I just have a, a set of keys, all right? And, um, and what I'm going to do is, I'm going to actually do this first. Pastor, you don't mind if the carpet gets a little wet. Is that okay? All right. We got this bottle of water. It is completely full and it is sealed. And your job is going to be, when I spill this water on the ground, I'm going to dump some of this water out. I want you to gather it all up and I want you to put it back in the cup from once it came. All right. So here we go. I'm going to open it up. And uh, if you'll step back just a minute, I don't want you, I don't want you to get your shoes or anything uh, dirty. So, okay, there, there it goes. We're pouring some of it out. Okay, we've, we've lost quite a bit of water. Now, I want you, now quick, hurry up well, b- before, it's all, before it's all gone. There you go. Come on, put it, put it in there, the little drops. Keep going. There's, there's still plenty of water there in that carpet. You, j- yeah, get the, get the rest of it. Come on, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. It's, already, it's already dry? Well, it's not already dry, but it's, it's, it's trending in that direction, isn't it? All right? You get the point, right? Once you, once you spill water on the ground, you can't gather it again. Now, in contrast, here's my keys. Pick those up. Hand them back to me. Wow, look at this guy. He's slick. You you can, an object like this, no problem. Drop it on the ground, pick it up again. Water, not so much. Liquid, not so much. Once it's spilled, it's gone. And that, thank you. And that was the lesson that this woman, this wise woman of Tekoa was giving to David. She said this essentially. She said, David, you've got one life. You, You only have so many children. Once this life is over, once this time that you have here on this earth is gone, it's gone. We're like water spilt on the ground. And our lives, the days of our lives cannot be gathered up again. You can't put it back in the cup from whence it came. And David, look, I understand you being upset about what Absalom has done. I get that. But we also see the fact that you love your son with, with an everlasting love. And, and even though he's sinned and even though he's messed up, we recognize and understand that you would be willing to forgive him if he were to seek that forgiveness. And so she says, David, with the time that you have left, I urge you to bring your son back. God devises a way for those of us that have sinned against him not to be banished from him forever. You and I, we ought to provide the same opportunities for those that wrong us as well. And with the few brief moments that I have with you together today, I I want you to consider that your life You as a young person, you are like water. That once your life, once the things that you have are spilled on the ground, you you can't gather them up again. You see, a lot of times we put a lot of emphasis on things that that are things that once they're spilled on the ground, we can gather them up again. For instance, money. You know, you can spend money on certain things, and and if it doesn't work out or if it's a poor investment, through hard work and through effort, perhaps you can go out and you can re-earn or regain the money that you lost. You can make up for a bad investment. You can make up for some poor choices financially here and there. But did you know that God has given you some things? They're very precious things. They're very valuable things in which once you've spilled them on the ground, you can't gather them up again and put them back into the container from whence they came. And with the time that I've left, I want you to consider three very simple things from the Word of God that another, and once they're spilled, they're gone completely. The first one is very simple it's our lives. Your life, your life is something that once you've spilled it out, once you've either invested it or wasted it, you cannot go back and you cannot redo that which you've already spent. Your life, the Bible says in James chapter number 4 and verse number 14, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You recognize that yesterday, Friday, September the 5th, is a day that is gone in your life. I don't know what you did yesterday. Perhaps some of you went to a high school football game last night and you attend a certain high school, you went out to support the team or maybe you played in the game and you were out there last night giving it your all underneath the lights on a Friday night. Perhaps yesterday you uh, got into some type of an argument or some type of an issue with a friend or maybe with a parent and uh, and it's too late, you can't go back and, and you can't redo what happened yesterday. You can't go back and redo what happened Thursday or Wednesday or Tuesday or Monday of this past week. But you know what we can do? We can look ahead and we can determine, look, I may have made a mess out of my life in the past, but from here on out, I'm going to take full advantage of the days that God has given me. But understand the time clock is ticking on Saturday, September the 6th. It won't be long before this day is over. And you'll look back on what you did today and you may reminisce with positive thoughts or you may reminisce with negative thoughts, but it won't be, it'll be too late to go back and, and redo it. You'll never get Saturday, September the 6th, 2014 back again. I got married on Saturday, August the 5th, 2000. And uh, that's been over 14 years now. Ago that that took place. And of course, as a, just a young person getting married and, and uh, all, of the, all of the changes happening in my life, I, I suppose I didn't fully appreciate that day like I should have. Man, lots of friends to see and people to say hello to, and, and uh, lots of just thoughts and feelings going through my mind and making the transition from my parents' home and now all of a sudden stab- establishing my own home. And many times my wife and I will talk about that day, and my wife will say something like this. Boy, I wish we could go back and relive that day. Well, unfortunately, I hate to break it this tour, but I'm a realist. We, we can't go back and relive Saturday, August the 5th, 2000. It's too late. That day is gone. It's long gone. Young person, I want you to understand that every single day of your life that passes by you is like water that is spilt on the ground and it cannot be gathered up again. And our lives are slowly, in some respects, or maybe quickly ebbing away. You know, the Bible refers to this life, it, it uses a word picture, it uses it, it, calls it a vapor. It's a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. We live in Northeast Ohio, many of you do, and you understand the concept of winter. And you understand, you know, the fact that, you know, you come outside an early cold morning and, and you, you take a deep breath and then you exhale and you see the vapor that comes. It's there for a moment and then it vanishes away. I've got four children, and we've had a lot of weddings at our church this summer. And, and one of the new things that couples are doing, instead of, instead of throwing rice, I don't even know if we allow that on our church property anymore because it's such a mess to clean up, and you've got every bird within 20 miles descending on the place to get the rice. And so what we've done is we said, use something else like bubbles. My kids love bubbles. And uh, my kids, you know, they'll get these bubbles at these weddings, and they've got like, they've got like three or four bottles from this from this summer at weddings and they'll storm in the car and we'll be driving down the road. And my one daughter will say, Daddy Mallory's blowing bubbles in the backseat. No, we don't blow bubbles in the car, you know? And that's like the worst thing that you can possibly do. But I noticed that they'll they'll blow a bubble and then they'll try to catch it on the end of their, on the end of their uh, the little stick there in which of the wand, I guess, that they've blown the bubble through. And it may be there for just a moment, but you know how it is. A little bit of wind, or if it touches the ground, or if it hits a surface in a certain way, it pops, it's gone. Then you know what the Bible says about your life? Your life is similar to that. It comes out, and, and, and we live the life, and it's brief, it's short. In light of eternity, eternity never ends. It's never ending, but your life, one of these days, will end, young people. And your life is short, it's it's like a vapor that, a vanish, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Psalms 90 in verse number 10 puts it this way. It says, The days of our years are three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years or eighty years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon, soon cut off and we fly away. According to the word of God, we're blessed or fortunate, most of us, to live seventy years, but beyond that, there are no promises. Some will live to be 80, some will live to be longer than that, but the Bible says about life that it is soon cut off where we experience death and then we fly away. Let me ask you this question. When you, when you fly away from this life, where are you going? Where are you going? You say, I'm 17 years old. I want to think about death at this point. Well, that's your choice. That's your prerogative, but I, I know teenagers die. I, I know young people who have died. I know people that have contracted cancer and have died. When I was in Bible college, I was uh, going into my junior year. I had a young lady that graduated from our Christian school. She was two years younger than me. She was in my brother's class. Her name was Cindy. Cindy had a desire to serve God with her life. And she believed that she would go to Bible college and earn a degree uh, in, in education. And her desire was to move back to Cleveland and serve at the Heritage Christian School, teaching Christian school like she had been taught when she was a student there. She enrolled in Bible college in, in August of 1999 and, and uh, was there for about a month and a half or so. I was in the same school as she was and didn't know her real well. She was two years younger than me, a little bit quieter than I was. And, but I knew, I knew her. I'd say hello to her. I knew her sister a whole lot better because we were in the same class in high school and she had joined there at Bible college as well. And, And and my brother was there as well. And so me and my brother were there. And and this young girl and her sister were were all there at school together. And and the life just seemed to be wonderful until, until Saturday, September the 25th, 1999. It was a day similar to any other day. It was a beautiful day outside. I remember it vividly for a couple of reasons. I had an opportunity when I was in Bible college to work down at the football stadium where the University of Tennessee volunteers played football. And uh, we had a unique job down there. And the best part about the job wasn't the pay, but the best part about the job is it usually finished up just as the game was kicking off. And we had to take our supplies back into the stadium. And so we would drop those things off. And without a ticket, we were in the stadium. And so we got to stick around and enjoy the rest of the game oftentimes. And so we would go and watch the game. And I remember I was there till about middle of the third quarter. And I had some things going on that, that night with my girlfriend at that time, who would eventually become my wife. And we were going out with a a couple from the, uh, from the college. They were going to be our chaperones and we had a date planned. And so I left the ball game early. Now that was commitment. Let me tell you. I'm a sports junkie. In fact, uh, when I, when I, when Brother Kavanaugh called me about this youth rally, I said, yeah, I'll be there. I hung up and I thought, Oh my word, that's a Saturday in the fall. I went online, Ohio State. When do they play? Ah, oh, I'm good. Eight o'clock on Saturday night. Perfect. I don't know if you plan this, brother, Pastor O'Donnell, but somebody's an Ohio State fan in this church. God bless you. God bless you. Are there any Michigan fans in here? You can all leave right now. You can go at this time. This is your chance to get on out of here. All right. Very good. So, so you know, you know, this was a serious relationship because I was leaving a football game early to spend time with it. We went out that night, spent some time together, and, and uh, I, I, was just, I was just exhausted. I was tired. It had been a long day. And, and so we, we, we headed back to the, to the campus, and our chaperones dropped us off. And, and uh, by the way, let me just pause here for just a moment. It has nothing to do with the message, but be careful in your dating practices and in your dating you know, habits. You know, Some of you are sitting here saying, you were in college and you had a chaperone. You are one pathetic loser. You know, well, you know, I guess it depends on the way that you look at it. But I will tell you that I got married uh, and I still have my purity intact. And uh, by the way, I'm still married 14 years later and I'm enjoying the life that God has given me. And I believe part of it is because I was protected as a young person. Uh, By the way, double dating, oftentimes that's not safe either. Uh, You know, honestly, you want to hear how much of a pathetic loser I am? You know, date with your parents. You say man, that is lame and pathetic I heard, I heard, I heard I heard it, I know, but you know what it 'll protect you I guarantee you, girls, no guy is going to make a move on you with your dad sitting right there. You can forget about it there 's protection in that uh, if you 'll if you'll just follow it and so we had this we had this date, we came back to the college. And I went back to my dorm. I was exhausted. And, and as I walked into my dorm, I was sitting there just kind of getting ready for uh, bed on Saturday night and realizing I had a day of responsibility the next day in church and ministries and different things like that. And uh, all of a sudden, young men began to trickle into the dorm and they began to talk about some type of a car accident. And they said, we were, we were walking our you know, girlfriends back to their dorms and we were just hanging out at the campus playing volleyball or whatever. And and, uh, and we heard this loud noise. It wasn't far from the campus. And, and even some of the guys went off t- running in that direction. And, and uh, we don't know what happened, but we think it might have involved some young people from our school. Well, nobody knew at that point. And, and oftentimes you, you, you think, you know, as a young person, you don't think about the worst thing that could happen. And and uh, I remember some of the dorm supervisors he said look let 's get everybody together here in this central room we don 't know what 's going on. We think that maybe it involves some students in our in our college, but we don 't know for sure so let 's just have a, a time of prayer and so we did. We gathered together. I can tell you the young man that I prayed with that night he 's a pastor now down in the state of Georgia, and, and we prayed together that night, not really knowing anything about anything. I remember I went to my room that night and I was on a top bunk and uh, never a good thing for a guy this size to be on the top bunk, but that's the way it worked, you know. And, and, uh, and I, I was up on the top bunk, and I was just ready to fall asleep, and the, and the phone rang outside our dorm. This is how long ago this was. It was a payphone. You guys are like scratching your heads. What is he talking about, you know? When I was in college and high school, we didn't have cell phones. We had beepers, pagers. You know what I'm talking about, you know? You'd, you'd get a little thing. Ah, I got to call so-and-so. Where's the closest payphone, you know? And... And do I have a quarter? Oh, I don't have a quarter. I'm going to call collect, you know. But all of these things are things that you guys know nothing of. And uh, the payphone rang. And uh, the guy closest to the, to the door went outside, grabbed it, and said, hello? And he goes, yeah, hold on just a second. And he set the phone down and he said, Pete, it's for you. Well, of course, all the tensions are high. We're all anxious. We're a little nervous. We've heard that there's been an accident, but we don't know all the details. We don't even know if it involves someone from our school. But then the phone rings at like 1130, and it's for me, and I start thinking, this, this is probably not going to be good. I got out of my bed, and I w- went over to the phone, and I picked it up, and I said, hello, and there was silence on the other end. I said, hello, hello. I said it a few times and it was just, it was blank. There was nothing there. I said, oh, maybe it was just a prank call or whatever. And I hung up and I got back in bed. And I got to be honest, I was somewhat relieved. I thought, ooh, dodged a bullet. About 30 seconds later, the phone rang again. I was in Bible college in East Tennessee and there are hills and mountains and different things like that. And many times you're driving and you've got a signal and all of a sudden the signal cuts off and I can only assume that's what happened. Phone rang again and Gentleman picked it up. He said, hello. He said, yeah, hold on just a second. I said, Pete, it's for you again. And this time I realized there's something going on here. Went over to the phone and I picked it up and I said, hello. And on the other end was the voice of one of the assistant pastors in the church and a professor in the college. And he said, we're coming to get you. He said, there's been an accident and we, we need you to go with us. That's about all he said. At that point, I began to worry. My, my brother's a student in the college and I thought, well, I dropped my girlfriend off a little bit early. I wonder if she went out and, and, uh, was out with some friends afterwards. I, you know, I didn't know what had happened or what was going on. And I, I went back into the room and I told the guys, look, just pray. I don't know what's going on. I got, I got changed and I went out and I waited for the car to pull up and the car pulled up. I got in the back seat. There was a gentleman in the front seat next to the driver. Some of the dorm supervisors came out of, the, uh, out of the dorm that we were living in and they just walked up to the, the car and they said, look, everybody's concerned, everybody's you know, really worried. What's going on? Is there something that we can, we can know so that we can pray a little bit more intelligently? And the gentleman driving the car who had made the phone call to me said, well, there's been an accident. And then he said this, I'll never forget it, as long as I live. There was a long pause and he said, two are dead. Didn't, didn't know at that point what was going on or why I was being drugged into the middle of this thing. This is a Bible college with 600 students. Why am I having to get in the car? Why do I have to go with them to the hospital? What in the world is going on? We took off from the dorm and we began to make our way to one of the downtown hospitals there in the city of Knoxville, Tennessee. And he began to share with me the story that this young girl that had graduated from our Christian school just the previous spring had been in the car and... A drunk driver was driving without any lights on in his car and he came up over a hill and and he just, as they were backing out, no lights on, they didn't see him coming and he hit the car and she died instantly. They said, we want you to be there because her sister is going to be there and we want there to be a familiar face. I began to pray in the backseat of that car. I thought to myself, how am I going to, how am I going to comfort a a, a young girl who's just lost her sister? I'm in Bible college, I don't know what to say. They haven't taught us that yet in the classes that I'm in. And, 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 and I, I don't know where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do and, and how I'm going to handle this. And I, I mean, I was as scared as I've ever been. I'll never forget we got there and we spent a little bit of time there at the hospital before the young lady finally got to, to the hospital. And when she got there, I was just kind of standing in this dark parking lot. It was probably, by this point, 12.30 or 1 in the morning. And she came running out of the van that she was riding in. And she came and she just, she just fell on me. And she wrapped her arms around my neck and she just sobbed. I'll never forget as long as I live, I'm standing there in this parking lot and I am just a junior in Bible college. I'm 20 years old. I have no idea how I've gotten myself into the middle of this mess. I remember this girl saying something to this effect. She's saying, tell me this is not true. Tell me this is a dream and I'm just going to wake up and this is not going to be reality. I don't know what to say. I'm standing there. I'm scared. I'm brokenhearted. I know this girl certainly not as well as her sister does, but but, I don't know what to say or what to do. Never forget... We spent another two to three hours there at the hospital, and finally we went home. It's about three in the morning. We went to the girls' dorm where this young lady lived, and her sister lived in the same dorm, but they were not in the same room. This girl that her sister had died that night, she had been working, and so that's why she was not with the other girls. She probably would have been. But she had been working that night, and at 3 a.m. she went back to her dorm, and as she went into her room... She was just kind of, maybe had a flashlight. I don't know if they turned on the lights. they probably turned on the lights. Probably most of the girls were awake because of what had happened. And when she got into her room, listen to me, young people, there was a note on her bed from her sister. The sister that was now in heaven. She had written it earlier that day, and she had just written and just said, I'm so thrilled to be here, and I love you so much, and I'm so thankful that we're in Bible college together, and I'm just loving every minute of this. Something to that effect. I thought to myself, how, how, how that young lady had... The perception, the wisdom to write that note at that point, I don't know. But I guarantee you that that girl will cherish that note for the rest of her life. Young people, I share that story with you to tell you, not to scare you, but to tell you that we we don't know. We don't know how long we have here on this earth. We take our time for granted. We, we, we think we make plans. We say, well, I'm going to go to this college and I'm going to graduate with this degree and I want to marry this person and I want to live in this community. I want to drive this kind of car and I want to shop at these kinds of stores and we, we make all of these assumptions and we make all of these plans and I'm not opposed to making plans. But I want you to understand something, young people. We must realize that our lives are short. We must realize that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed the rest of today. And we must understand and live in light of that thought and recognize that, look, there's a God that we're going to be accountable to. And young people, I'm afraid far too many of us are pouring our lives out like I poured that water a moment ago, giving no thought whatsoever to eternity, giving no thought whatsoever to the fact that we're going to stand before God someday. And many young people get down to their lives, and they get down on their hands and knees, and they try to gather up just a few fragments to put it back in the bucket, and it's impossible because of our lives. And like water that's spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. I want to say, secondly, not only is your life something that once it's spilled, it's gone. But number two, young person, your purity is something that's so very precious and valuable. And once you've given it away, once you've been careless with it, once you've taken it and you've opened it up and you've spilled it out on the ground, it's not something that can be gathered up again. Oh, we can we can go to God and we can ask for His forgiveness and and He'll give it to us, but you and I will bear the scars for the rest of our lives. We'll deal with the sorrow, the hurt, the regret. We'll deal with all of these things for the rest of our lives. I remind you of the prodigal son in Luke chapter number 15. The Bible says that he went out and he wasted his substance with riotous living. I can only assume what riotous living means. And I'm certainly not going to get graphic, but I can assume that probably he was somewhat careless morally. That he went out and he just lived life and gave no thought whatsoever uh, to his future and, and no thought whatsoever to the way that he had been raised. And he just did that which felt good. He came back home. We know the story and we know that his, his dad waited and was there to welcome him with open arms. We know that story. And they killed the fatted calf and they celebrated his return home, but... He also recognized that his inheritance was gone. His brother would still be able to claim his inheritance someday later on in the future. By the way, most likely an inheritance that would grow with time. See, he took the easy way out. He said, I want what I want and I want it right now. The brother waited and even though his attitude wasn't the best, understand young person, the brother probably got more much later on because he chose to wait. But here's the the point. This this young man decided he wanted what he wanted right now, and he got it. But you know what else he got? He got regret, sorrow, heartache. Try as he might, he'd never get those years back of his life. He'd never be able to regain this purity. Young person, I want you to know that your purity is very precious. It is to be guarded fiercely. It is of great value. Not only that, but it it is priceless. You can't put a price tag on it. And there's no amount of money that is great enough to purchase something that is so powerful and and, and, and valuable. Let me say that your purity is powerful. We just recently witnessed a professional athlete who was mocked and made fun of. His name was Tim Tebow because he had a Christian testimony. I don't know all about this young man and and his Christian life, but I can only tell you what I see. And it seems to me as though he, he was a pretty fine, upstanding young man. He may not have been like us in every single area, and every single situation, maybe as far as doctrinally or whatever the case may be, but he, he certainly was a man that, that, that spoke very highly of Christ. You saw the world blown away that there would be someone his age that would still be pure. Blown away that the, there would be someone not only of his age, but with his opportunities and how popular he was, that he would still have his purity about him. It's a powerful thing when you can walk up to your friend's not in a spirit of pride, but just in a spirit of of Christ-likeness and just say, look, I'm pure. I'm I'm not messing around with that kind of stuff. I'm saving myself for my future spouse someday. That's a powerful statement to be made. And by the way, many times that opens up avenues and opportunities for you to share Christ with them. Because the rest of the world doesn't understand that philosophy. They don't live by that, type of, uh, by that type of culture. They'll look at you and they'll say, Why? What is wrong with you? What, what do you have that I don't have? And it gives you an opportunity to take the scriptures and say, Look, Christ saved me. My body is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God in my body. By the way, the Bible still says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I'll finish with this and I'll be done. Not only is your life something that once it's spilled on the ground it cannot be gathered up again, and your purity is something that once it's spilled on the ground, it cannot be gathered up again. But lastly, your words. Your words. Go with me quickly. We'll be done to James chapter number 3. The book of James chapter number 3. But right after the book of Hebrews, we come to the book of James. And many have likened it to the New Testament Proverbs. And I certainly tend to agree with them. It's a a very practical book filled with lots of wonderful things. And look in verse number 5. It says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Listen to verse number 9. Therefore bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not so to be. Here, here's the point. Some of you young people, you, co- you go to church on Sunday and you sing the praises of God and you read scripture when you're called on by your Sunday school teacher and you may even go out in teen school and share the gospel. But when you're out playing sports on Friday night or on Tuesday night or you're whatever, sometimes out of that same mouth that you use to sing hymns and bring honor and glory to the Lord, out of that same mouth, maybe you uttered profanity. Or maybe you use that same mouth to use uh, some type of uh, double meaning or some type of an innuendo that, uh, that maybe on the surface seems fine, but said in the way that it was said and in the context in which it was said maybe perhaps means something else. And God said that ought not to be. As Christians, that we would praise God with our tongue and then turn around the next day and that we would curse men with our tongue. God forbid that we should live our lives like that. Young people, I want you to know something. Your words, once they've been spoken can't get them back. I was was at a church preaching the other day and they had a sign out front of their church and had a little marquee and and it said something to this effect. I I, I may not get it exactly right, but it said, words are are hard to hold back, but impossible to take back. I thought that was a powerful statement. Have you ever been there before? You're in conversation with someone and you just say what's on your mind. It just kind of comes out and And all of a sudden, you look at the person in which your comments were directed, and you realize you've done so much damage. And we try one of these numbers. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I take it back. Oh, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I was just joking. No big deal. Ah, you know. By the way, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. In other words, young person, don't try to give this excuse to your youth pastor, your parents, when you slip up and you say something that you should not be saying. Don't try to say, well, it's just an accident. I don't know where that came from. I know where it came from came from a heart that has that inside of it. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I remember as a boy being taught this phrase by folks in the neighborhood and maybe even by some Sunday school teachers, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a cute little phrase and I understand where it came from, but I don't think there's really an ounce of truth to it. Because if I come to you today and I take a baseball bat and I swing it as hard as I can and I break your arm, Um, You'll go to the doctor and the doctor will set the arm and the bone and they'll put you in a cast and within usually four to six weeks you're back to normal. But I could come to you today and I could say something that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Every time you think about the words that came out of my mouth it'll hurt all over again. 1998 I believe I was in Bible college again at this time and it was in April of 1998 and my parents happened to be in town. My dad was preaching at a Bible conference there in the school that I was attending. In. So they had gotten a hotel room and I was staying with them. Anytime I could get away from the dorm, I took full advantage of it. And I remember that afternoon we had gone to lunch and we came back to the hotel and we were sitting there and we turned on the television. As we began to turn the channels, everything was kind of focused on one particular event. The event we're all familiar with now is an event that took place at a school called Columbine outside of Denver, Colorado. As far as I can remember, it was the first event of its kind that unfolded in public schools in the United States of America. You know the story. Most of you do. There were two men. Their names were, I believe, Dylan Harris and a man by the name of Eric Klebold, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on that. But those two young men came into a school on that day. I believe it was a Thursday in April of 1998. And they had weapons stockpiled. And their plan was to kill everybody in that school. And eventually, when they were done with their shooting spree, to blow the whole place up. That was the plan. Well, obviously when something like that happens, and, and obviously they did not fulfill their plan. Praise the Lord for that. They did, they did kill a number of students. I think the count was 16 or 17 with teachers and then and them combined. But the law enforcement was able to get in there able to get the situation under control. i still never forget those young people running out of that school with their hands behind their heads, trying to run as fast as they could to safety. You can only imagine. You go to school and all of a sudden you hear gunfire in your school, what that would do to you. My understanding is they went into the bedrooms of those two young men and they began to look into their writings and into their emails and internet usage and began to search those things out and they began to find out that these two young men were on a daily basis mocked and ridiculed and scorned and made fun of in the school that they attended. They were part of what at that time was known as the trench coat mafia. They were guys that kind of were that, of that gothic atmosphere and wore lots of black and that sort of thing. And they'd come to school on days in which, you know, the weather was, was pretty nice outside and they'd be wearing these long trench coats. And so the kids mocked them and made fun of them. They had a good time with them, had, had lots, of, lots of fun with them to the point where those two young men eventually snapped. Why? Because of the words of someone else. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There was probably a whole lot more going on than that, but that was one of the contributing factors to why those two young men went into a school and decided that they were sick of the teasing, sick of the ridiculing, sick of the mocking and the scorning, and they were going to make life miserable on people that had made their lives miserable for years. The point is this, young people, we, we must be careful about our words. We must be careful how we interact with people. Somebody comes into your youth group as a visitor on Sunday morning, you have no idea what it might do for them for you to walk up to them and introduce yourself to them. You have no idea what it might do for them if you were to walk up and compliment them and say something kind to them, say something nice to them. You might have gained a friend for a lifetime. We interact with people every day. We have no idea what they're dealing with. We don't, we don't know what's going through their minds. We don't know what's going through their hearts, the pressures that they're dealing with. And a simple word of, hey, you look nice today, or hey, you're a blessing to me, or I appreciate your friendship. We have no idea how that could keep someone going for another day. But sometimes we instead walk up to people and maybe just in the guise of teasing or joking around, but we say something, and it might be the very thing that would push someone over the edge. Young person, I want you to know something. Our words are like water that is spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Young person, your life, your purity, your words. Hey, look, the money that you have in your pocket, you can blow it on something stupid today. Hey, no big deal. Go out and earn it again next week. You can gather that up again, and you can put it back into the container from whence it came, but your life, you'll never be able to do that. Your purity, hey, once it's gone, it's gone. Protect it in your words. You bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Our heads are bound and our eyes